You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I sit down with investor and analyst Jay Mintzmeyer to talk about his views on investing in the shipping industry and principles of deep value investing. You might be familiar with Jay as he's one of the top contributors on Seeking Alpha with over 300 articles. He shares with us his knowledge on deep value investing and also gives us a look into the shipping industry. The shipping industry was always one I avoided as an investor because I considered it to be outside of my circle of competence, as Warren Buffett would say. So I found this conversation to be very helpful and educational. So without further ado, let's get into this week's episode with Jay Mintzmeyer. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everyone. Welcome to today's show. I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Jay Mintzmeyer. Welcome to the show, Jay. Hey, Robert. appreciate it. It's good to be here. I'm excited for our conversation today. I'm pretty well-versed in quite a few different industries, but one that I don't know much about is the shipping industry. And that's going to be our focus of the episode today. But before we dive into that conversation, tell the audience a bit about you. I've been a part-time investor for a little over a decade. I started writing on Seeking Alpha back in 2011. And when I started out, I was covering mostly value stocks. And then I started getting a little bit more into some of the niche deep value type sectors, looking into energy and some mining. And you know, I came across shipping and it just fascinated me by how disconnected some of these stocks could be from the underlying fundamentals. Like nobody really cared about how much cash flow the company was earning or what the shipping rates were per se. They were more focused on broad, just macro thematic things. And not only that, but you know, shipping had that huge boom and bust along with the entire economy in 2008 and 2009. So I, I just kind of started finding these stocks, some of them which were very beat up and some of which were basically garbage and about to go bankrupt. And I just started seeing some of these disconnects. So that was back in 2011, 2012. And I just wrote on Seeking Alpha, kind of a blog part-time as I was directing my own investments. And then about 2015, I think it was April or May, Seeking Alpha launched this new platform called The Marketplace. And that allows folks like myself to take my you know, kind of self-directed investing and, and research and that much and, and turn it into a sort of a platform. It's like a subscription research platform. So I was one of the first, I think it was like 30 or 40 folks that launched a platform back in, uh, I think it was May 2015. And look, it's, it's February 25th, uh, 2020 as we're recording this. So that was about five years ago. You know, throughout this process, I became one of the most prolific analysts kind of in the space. And that's mainly our focus. It started with overall value. So our service is called Value Investors Edge, but it's really morphed more so into that deep value and sort of maritime shipping investment space. What made you want to start a quote unquote side hustle, if you will, writing for websites like Seeking Alpha and providing equity analysis? Interesting question. It doesn't seem like it was that long ago, but I guess it was really almost 10 years ago when I, when I stumbled upon Seeking Alpha. You know, I, I was starting uh, you know, part-time investing back in about 2010. And you know, I'd, I'd read as many articles as I could about the companies that I owned. And one of the earliest companies I owned, it was back in 2008, 2009, was, was Ford Motors. I remember always looking up articles about that company and reading the latest sales figures and the pros and cons. And, and, and Seeking Alpha was just starting out around that same time. So I remember stumbling upon a bunch of blogs there. And you know, there was other sites like The Street and Motley Fool and so on. But Seeking Alpha had a really unique community in terms of you could post comments and people would have like respectful dialogues with you. And 
it wasn't like a message board spam. It was actually like a back and forth conversation uh, between investors. So I, I, I did that for, I mean, about a year and a half. And I was in college at the time. I noticed they had like a button that said you could become a contributor. Well, that, you know, I'd been on the site for about a year and a half and I'd been investing for about three years. I said, okay, well, you know, I'll just write a couple blogs about some of my approaches to investing and not knowing that much, right? But just seeing what I could do. And that was, I guess, summer of 2011. And so it wasn't really like some intention to be a side hustle or to make money or anything like that. I, I think the first article I wrote, I mean, it was probably terrible by today's standards, but I think I made like $25 on it. Wasn't really motivated by the money as much as I was just to kind of get out there and learn from others and be part of that community. And of course, that changed in 2015 was when they had allowed for the research platforms to be launched. And that's when it became more, I guess you could say, a side hustle. Still not that much money, but it became a little bit more serious, I think, in 2015. And then, of course, now we run what I believe is the preeminent source for deep value investing research on Seeking Alpha. We're our number three in terms of you know, annual recurring revenue on the website and so on and so forth. So it's, it's really kind of changed and blossomed over the years. You and I actually connected being Seeking Alpha because in 2017 and 2018, I had done some writing for Seeking Alpha as well. So for someone who's listening to the show and interested in a side hustle related to investing or just wants to provide equity analysis like you did, what have you found to be the pros and cons of partnering with an established financial platform like Seeking Alpha? Well, you know, I think there's just a lot of great questions inside there, Robert, and we'll, we'll try to unpack some of those. But you know, it, Seeking Alpha is, like I mentioned, I think in the last you know, response, I was talking about how I got started. It already has that community, right? They have, I think it's like 10 or 15 million members, and it's a very good dialogue that you get in the comments section and so on. It's not, if you're starting out and you just do your own blog, you, you never know what your audience is going to be. You never know how many people are going to show up. You don't know if they're going to stick around and participate and so on. With Seeking Alpha, first of all, you have that community. Second of all, you have an editor team that they won't like, you know, rewrite your article for you, but they will give you some grammatical edits. Or if you're getting a little bit, you know, too fired up in one regard, maybe they'll maybe they'll tone you down a little bit, or or help point you over to to some ways to learn how to be a better writer, or give you some better tips, or so on. So I think if you're just starting out and researching and writing, I think Seeking Alpha is a great platform to really learn from and experience from. For the most part, as, as long as you're putting forth a genuine effort, I think the community members will, will be respectful and really want to share ideas and collaborate with you. I don't have a lot of experience on other sites or other blogs, but I just know that Seeking Alpha was, was definitely a community endeavor. And, and that, was a big, that was a big pro for us. In terms of someone else who's starting out today, yeah, I mean, I think out with the goal of, you know, this is going to be this great side hustle, I'm going to make all this money, you know, that might not turn out so well for you. It just depends, right? But if your goal is, hey, I'm already investing, right? I'm already doing that research for investing, and I just want to share with some others and, and share ideas and get smarter about this thing, uh, then I think you're going to have a lot of fun in the process. And you know, maybe you make some nice money because of your, your articles or because of your connections, or maybe you land a job because of a really good investment pitch that you do, and that gets you recognized, and maybe you get an offer at a hedge fund or something like that. But I think if you go in with the pure goal of like, I'm going to make a lot of money you know, writing articles, or I'm going to land a job from this investment pitch that I'm sharing, I just don't think that sort of motivation, you could get disappointed because I mean, you're setting your bar really high, right? If you just set your bar to learn and improve, I think you're going to be happy no matter what happens. What is a reasonable income that someone could expect to earn if they're just writing a couple articles a month on Seeking Alpha as a side hustle? Maybe they're in college or maybe they even work a full-time job and they're just passionate about investing and they want to do some writing. What can they expect to earn roughly? 
it's not a lot of money, right? It's, it's not a significant sum. And it really depends on if you're writing about something that's very niche, like I do maritime shipping, or if you're writing on something that's maybe a little bit more popular, like you know Tesla or Apple, or as we are recording this, if you wrote an article about, say, like coronavirus, right, and how that would impact markets. I think if you're just writing an average article based on their confiscation scheme, I don't know, $60, $70, it's certainly not a lot of money, right? That's why I mentioned that your motivations have to be also partly educational. It's partly fun. It's part of the community. It can't just be about making them money. Now, if you do get lucky, you do get fortunate and you, you write an article that you know just goes viral, if you call it that, and maybe you could get a couple hundred dollars on, on one of your articles. So I wouldn't say it's it's not a valid side hustle, I, but it's your primary motivation just to write regular articles. It can't just be about the money. You have to get something else out of it, in my opinion. So let's dive into your actual investments now. Obviously, we've talked about how you're a deep value guy and you focus mainly on the shipping industry. But before we get into your focus on that industry, why do you choose the deep value strategy as your strategy? And for those who don't know, what does it mean to be a deep value investor? I guess we'll, we'll kind of start at the top. So yeah, I'm sure most listeners have heard of the efficient market hypothesis. And that's the idea that the market already prices in all the known information. And there's no point right, in picking stocks because it's already all priced in. You could just throw dartboards at a list of stocks and comprise a perfectly equal portfolio than one could do with hours of rigorous research. So that's efficient market hypothesis. Of course, most of us as self-directed investors would say that that's rubbish, at least at some point. But my viewpoint is that the larger the stock is, the larger the market cap is, the more attention people are placing on that stock, the less likely that Jay Minsmeyer sitting over here you know, 10 years ago right, with just my, my laptop or even now with, with the research tools I have today the odds of me, you know, outmaneuvering all of Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, all those folks, and in these hundreds of hedge funds on a, on a stock like, say, Tesla or Apple or Amazon, the odds of that are pretty small, right? I mean, I might as well, you know, just take thousand dollars and try to win a poker tournament, right? It, it, that's the kind of long odds we're talking about here. And you know, folks do it. I mean, random people sometimes win poker tournaments, but that's long odds. Now, the smaller you go in market cap, right? You get down into something like a small cap or into more of a value space where it's not very popular, right? There's not a lot of people researching it and covering it. There's more likely to be a chance of exploiting some sort of market disconnect, right? And that's why that kind of gets me down into the value space. And as we go even lower, we get into what's called deep value. So value just means that something's value something trades at a lower price to earnings multiple or price to sales multiple, you're buying that for a long-term cash flow investment, right? Whereas growth, you're only maybe looking at the stock price charts. You're looking for a lot of momentum. You're looking at something that's hugely growing revenue, something that's very popular. Right? So that's the broad thing. And as you go down in the value, deep value is even more beat up. It's been totally left for dead. It's totally unpopular. I mean, if you tell your neighbor about it, he's gonna he or she will think you're an idiot. Like if you write it out on a bar napkin down at the local pub, you know, you're gonna get laughed at. So that that's kind of devalue. And shipping just fits squarely into that. I mean, it's got all the things that people love to hate, right? It's got China exposure. It's uh, highly leveraged balance sheets. They're small caps. A lot of them are illiquid. Uh, some of the management teams are a little bit sketchy. A lot of these companies aren't even headquartered in the United States. Sometimes the filings are late. So it's got all these things, all these warts and all these wrinkles that keep a lot of people away. But those same things that keep people away lend themselves to these market disconnects. Either in one hand, you have a stock with this enormous dividend that's just not sustainable, and, and it's an idea to avoid or to short. Or on the other hand, it's a company that people have just left for dead, and it's something that we might want to buy. And we've seen, we've seen both indications on that. And 
you know, we've proven over the last five years with Value Investors Edge that we can profit and we can beat the market with these sorts of stocks. Yeah, deep value picks typically aren't ones that you're going to be able to brag about at your local family party or anything like that. Usually, those are those companies like Tesla, Facebook, Apple, things like that that are going to get the conversation flowing, but not necessarily where all the best returns are. And you've found that with your deep value strategy. So definitely think that's great advice. And you know, you don't often hear many people interested in the shipping industry. So other than just there being a lot of deep value picks there, why'd you decide that you wanted to cover it? So a lot of reasons. And it's funny because we're recording on, on 25 February you know, 2020, and uh, we've had the coronavirus out there for about a month now. And so shipping stocks have just been absolutely decimated. So it's, it's interesting. You know, yes, we've been very profitable over the past five years on average, but along with that territory of deep value also comes a lot of beaten down moments and locations, right? And so, so we're definitely going through one of those right now. And in terms of why I wanted to cover the shipping industry, I talked a little bit about the market disconnects, about how nobody else is looking at it. But I guess tangentially or related to that, it's all about global trade flows, which is just fascinating to me. And you know, ever since I was, I guess, a little kid and looking at trains and looking at the ports and seeing the ships coming in and out and seeing the trucks going down the highway and just thinking about that as I remember as a little kid, just watching the trains and thinking about like, where did that container come from? Like Hanjin, I didn't even know what that was, but like Costco, that's not spelled right. Like Costco, the store, you know, like it's misspelled. And, and, you know, as a little kid, just looking at these, these trains and thinking about the trade flows. And, you know, I was an economics undergrad and my master's is in international policy. So both trade policy and security policies. One of my focus items for my master's was actually kind of funny now, but it was a Trans-Pacific partnership and, and how the United States could best leverage that to improve their footing in Asia. Of course, I, I did this master's, you know, six years ago, six or seven years ago when I started that topic. And of course, now the TPP got ripped up by the Trump administration, which makes that kind of ironic. But I guess what I'm getting at is it's always been like my passion has always been like international trade and, and trade flows and the way the world works, economic systems. So not only am I finding these stocks with value disconnects, I'm also being able to enjoy the research that I'm doing and appreciate what it means for crude oil flows across the world, product tanker flows, iron ore, dry bulk, looking at retail goods moving in containers. Uh, that actually is interesting to me. And I, and I think maybe that's, I don't think that's interesting to a lot of folks, which uh, probably helps uh, keep the sector from getting too picked over. Yeah, I was just going to ask that. Why do you think more people aren't interested in the shipping industry? I think that's a perfect question to ask. You know, here we are late February and I just mentioned the coronavirus has just decimated these stocks and you know, I think that's part of the reason why because in shipping it's not really a buy and hold type sector. That's basically probably the understatement of the year. I mean, it's absolutely not a buy and hold sector at all. Like you have to be nimble with your positions and you have to be willing to change your thesis if the information that's coming out conflicts with your ideas, you have to be able to be nimble. Uh, you can't overexpose yourself to it because over the last 10 or 12 years, there has been bankruptcy after bust, after collapse, after all over the place. So I think a lot of investors don't want to buy these small cap stocks and and expose themselves to some of this risk. And you know, I think in the shipping sector, and not just I guess a shell for for the research that I'm offering, but I don't think that you can do well in this sector unless you have access to the best research. Like it is very difficult for us with myself a decade or more in the sector. We have a team of three folks on Valley Investors Edge. Like even with our research, it is a difficult sector. So I, I think if you're just kind of like randomly wandering into things, you would look at the price charts of the last five or ten years and you would say, my God, like why would I do this? Like why would I take this risk? And I don't even know what the difference is between DHT holdings and Starbuck carriers and 
Costa Marie, like I don't even know what those mean. I just look at price charts and I see all sorts of volatility. And so yeah, I think it I think it's very understandable that folks don't even want to mess with the sector, especially without having access to research. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year my buddies and I do a guys trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A dot com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. When I hear you say you're a deep value investor, but then you talk about how the shipping industry or the shipping sector isn't a buy and hold sector that you want to just buy and forget, I find that there's a little bit of a disconnect there, right? Because usually deep value investors are known as buy and hold, buy and own it forever. So talk to us a little bit more about that dynamic. Why wouldn't you want to just buy and hold in the shipping sector? I think you asked a fantastic question because you have to kind of eliminate the misconceptions, right? Because you're absolutely right that value folks, and I, I mean big value, right? And maybe not deep value, but value folks tend to be more so buy and hold. And I'm buying this great company with a great moat, enormous pricing power, and so on. And I'm just going to buy it for 20 years, right? That's that's kind of traditional value. And you know maybe it's a company that doesn't grow its revenues more than a couple percent every year, and the profits are kind of flattish and stable. But you know, it, but there's there's a moat there, right? Deep value is is cast aside. It's stuff that nobody wants to own. I mean, sometimes it's because people are short-sighted and we're going to take advantage and we're going to exploit that disconnect. But a lot of times people don't want to own these stocks for valid reasons. Right? Like if you're looking at the 2020 US elections, do you really want to be long a bunch of hydrocarbon stocks? I mean, do you really want to be buying oil and natural gas and stuff when 
when the number one front runner in Democratic side wants to tax like $3 trillion on oil companies. Like there's a reason people don't want to necessarily mess with some of these stocks. It's, it's not just because you know, people are dumb or whatever. So for shipping, you know, people look at risks. They look at stuff like China and they look at stuff like uh, coronavirus here cutting off uh, near-term demand. And they say, you know, that, that's something I don't, I don't necessarily want to mess with. So that creates a deep value opportunity. But I'm sure you've heard the term value trap. And that's, that's true for any value stock. But in deep value, it's even more so. I mean, there's lots and lots of landmines out here. And that's why I say, you know, if you don't have the right research, you don't have the right background in the sector, it's totally natural to just want to avoid it because there are a lot of landmines. Stocks are cheap often for a reason. So it's not, we don't just look at stocks and say, oh, these are, these are really cheap. So now in terms of buying and holding forever, you can be an investor without having this ridiculous time frame of like five years or 10 years or 20 years or whatever. You can be an investor that says, you know, it's just like in real estate, I want to invest in, I don't know, like the Las Vegas housing market. And you know what? That was a beautiful place to invest in 2003 and 2004 and maybe 2005. But it was a terrible place to invest in 2008, 2009. And then once again, it was a beautiful place, Las Vegas housing market. And I'm biased because I live there now. But in 2011, 2012, it was a beautiful place to invest. I mean, houses were going for 120, 130,000 that are now selling for over 300,000. You think about the absolutely great things you could do with leverage in that kind of market. Would you tell somebody that bought a house in Las Vegas in 2011 that only wanted to own that house for three years that they're not an investor? Right? No, you wouldn't. So I don't think there's when you really start to unpack things and think about timelines, I, I don't think there's really that much of contradiction. I think just folks tend to associate those things. So I, I really appreciate the question. I know I wandered a little bit there, but it's all about those time frames and looking at those cycles. I had one person mentioned the other day that said, Jay, you're more of a cycle trader than anything else. And I think that's true. I mean, it's like anything else. You want to buy when the sector's hated and it's cheap. And when people get a little bit too excited, enthusiastic, it is time to trim down those positions. Do you ever get the feeling or the pushback that it sounds like to me like it might be a timing mechanism where you're trying to time the market? Why aren't you necessarily doing what a lot of people would consider timing the market? Why is it an actual investment, not a speculation? Yeah, well, I think I think at the end of the day, speculation investment is really a spectrum. You're always, whenever you're making an investment, you're making some sort of speculation. And whenever you're making a speculation, you're allocating your money in some regard. It is in some form an investment. So I mean, I know there are different terms and I know folks like to say, well, this is not a trade, it's an investment, or oh, this is not an investment, it's just a trade for me. But at the end of the day, you're allocating your money into something that you think is going to be higher down the road. So you want to be careful with conflating the two a little bit too much. I mean, absolutely, when we're buying into some of these stocks, are we speculating, right? To use that word, 12 months, that stock's going to be higher? Absolutely. But at the end of the day, we're doing our research and we're looking at the company that we're buying and we're looking at the assets they own and we're looking at the macro currents behind those markets and supply and demand and so on. And we're also making an investment by saying, yes, I would like to place my money into a company that owns crude tankers or product tankers or dry bulk ships because I believe that that market is sound and those fundamentals are sound. So that's the investment part of it. The speculative part, absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, we're here to make money. We're not just in here randomly throwing money around. We're, we're trying to make money. And, and so it's a mixture between the two. And I, I think everything that you buy at some form is a speculation, but also an investment. So why do you think someone should consider this industry for their portfolio? What are some of the pros and cons? We've already talked about some of them, but are there any additional pros and cons? And why might someone want to consider this for their portfolio? <laughs> Unpopular opinion is, as a guy who is you know, sitting here and runs a research service focused on deep value and it focuses on shipping, but I would not recommend that people put very much of their portfolio into speculative stocks or, or shipping for that matter. 
I mean, myself, like I, I run a research platform and I heavily invest in the shipping market. But even myself, I have about 35, 35 to 30% of my net worth into speculative stocks. Like that's my cap. And the rest of that money I either allocate into real estate or to blue chips or to cash. So even myself, as a younger guy who is willing to take a little bit more of these risks, who is very, very familiar with the sector, very familiar, I only put 30 to 35%. So I, I want to I throw that out there as kind of a reminder to folks about those sort of allocations you take. So I cannot give personalized investment advice because I don't know everyone's position and so on that we're going to be listening to this podcast. But I would not allocate a high amount to anything speculative, whether that's mining or energy or shipping or whatnot, maybe more than 5 or 10% unless you really, really know it. So that's, first of all, just kind of disclaimer and caution out of the way. Now, with that said, the benefit of shipping is a lot of times there are these disconnects. And if you have access to the research and you can understand the supply and demand fundamentals, and you're not just focused on like the latest you know, trend in the chart, you can outperform the market. And like I said, we, we've proven that over time, over the last five years, we have consistently outperformed the Russell 2000 and certainly outperformed the rest of the industry on average, armed with that research, armed with that sort of viewpoint. For a new investor or just someone that's new to the industry, what is the best way for them to gain exposure to it and be confident in their allocation? Is a broad ETF best or should they pick individual companies in this industry? So absolutely, absolutely want to pick individual companies. Stuff that you've looked through that has a solid balance sheet where the supply and demand fundamentals of the company make sense, where the management team has been above board, there are good corporate coverance uh, processes in place, where all the filings are current that sort of thing. So yeah, definitely want to pick individual companies. And you know what? There used to be an ETF. It was a stock symbol SEAC, but it actually delisted about uh, about a week and a half ago. And that's just uh, symptomatic of how, how difficult this sector has been. And of course, that ETF was flawed. It had a lot of flaws. I mean, we, were, we would benchmark ourselves to it uh, over the years. And it was, in my opinion, it was just ridiculously easy to outperform it. I shouldn't downplay my, <laughs> I shouldn't downplay our performance like that but the CETF was just I mean it was just it had a lot of flaws because it, it absolutely was just like this broad ETF that bought all these shipping stocks with like no due diligence that went into it so they would buy these companies that were overcapitalized or facing all these headwinds and they wouldn't you know it wasn't actively traded or or whatnot so there're lots of flaws so now there's not even really an ETF to pick from so all you can really do is you can go out there and you can say hey I'm going to buy five of these companies that I research and I spend time on or I suppose if you had a really large portfolio, you could say, well, I'm going to buy 20 of them or 30 of them or so on. I definitely, there's definitely a balance between the two. Because if you buy all of them, then you're not really doing much investing. You're really just making it like an overall sector. You're just throwing a net around the sector and hoping it goes up or you know whatever. But if you buy too few, then all your eggs are in like one basket. So if you had an instance of, I don't know, fraud, or you, you put all your eggs in like one sector, like say crude tankers, and then you have this thing like coronavirus that hits near-term demand, you're allocating yourself a little thin. So what I do is I have two model portfolios. One is speculative holdings and one is more of a risk reward balance. So it's, it's still speculative, but it's a, it's a lot more stable on average. So I have six in each sector or each portfolio. So I have 12 holdings that I track as part of the models. And that's out of an industry of about 50 stocks. So out of 50, I've been picking about 12. Now I cover all 50, but I think that, that 12 is, is a rough balance. It doesn't have, doesn't have to be exactly 12. It could be 9, 10, 11, 12, 15. But the point being is that if I'm just buying 40 of them, then I'm not really investing, right? I'm just kind of throwing a net around the sector. I'm like a closet indexer, right? But if I only buy one or two or three, then I'm really, really, really just taking a lot of, uh, a lot of risk on, on just one or two names or three names. So with that ETF, you weren't finding that the handful of companies that were doing really well 
were bringing up the average of the ETF and then the ones that were either going bankrupt or just not performing weren't really making as much of an impact on the overall ETF. Because I mean, that's what we see in the S&P 500, right? One, probably one of the most popular ETFs in the US at least and probably in the world is we have a couple companies that do really, really well. That brings up the average for the whole ETF. And then there's a couple companies at the bottom that don't do as well, but it doesn't really have as big of an impact. And on average, it continues to grow in 8 or 9% per year. So was that not the case with that ETF before it delisted? Very valid question. I mean, it, that would make sense in a lot of industries. But if your industry is very beleaguered, right, and there's a lot of companies that really aren't doing well, and maybe in a given year, so you got 50 companies in a sector, and in a given year, you have 30 or 35 that do poorly, or maybe just not poorly, but they're flat or whatever, and you only have five or 10 that are up, and they're not up by a ton, your average could still be flat to negative, right? And so, I mean, we'll, we'll go back and look at 2019 because I, I do have those numbers in front of me. In 2019, the ETF was up 27%, which sounds pretty good. I mean, the Russell 2000 was up 24%. So if you said, I'm going to bet in shipping in 2019, you would have outperformed the market by 3%. But look, that was the, the ETF that picked a lot of the largest stocks in the sector. And on average, right, that's how much they went up. But look, in our, our best risk reward portfolio, we were up 43%. And our speculative plays portfolio was up 101%. So we did 72% in 2019, 72% versus the, the industry was up 27 so you know you do that by you know trying to identify companies that are selectively mispriced. Now, if you're an ETF and you just come in there, you're going to probably allocate yourself according to market cap. So first of all, they're going to be mostly in like the top five or top ten biggest companies. They're probably not going to own a lot of those smaller companies, at least not in not in equal proportion, right? Because they're they're usually market cap weighted. So for us, we don't we don't necessarily have that constraint. We're not necessarily market cap weighted. So I could buy a you know hundred million dollar company. And that could be 10% of my portfolio, right? And I'd have a billion dollar company, and that would also be 10% of my portfolio. So it's, it's, you know, it's equal you know, by stock. But in these ETFs, a lot of times they might have 10 times the allocation to that larger market cap company. So in theory, right, in financial theory, you say, well, that's the bigger company, it's more stable, and so on and so forth. And that might work for like the SP 500. But in shipping, a lot of times the company that has more value is, is also more inflated, right? It's, it's maybe the company you don't want to buy. So I think that the normal sort of like ETF-isms that, that maybe work in different sectors actually worked against the ETF and shipping. And it just made it like, I want to tell you, like we beat it five out of five years running. I mean, it was just like the easiest thing. And I, I guess, again, I probably, I couldn't, probably shouldn't say that, that it was this easy thing to beat because I mean, we compare our performance to it, but it was just an example of how inefficient the whole sector was. And, and another reason why I like that sector. Because if the ETF was always doing as well as all the sector names and it was very, very difficult to outperform, then dude, why would I waste my time? I would just buy the ETF. Right. So that's that's this example of why I really like the sector. Yeah, and that's a very good point. That's exactly why I wanted to dive into that, because ETFs are often looked at as, you know, good enough or good choices. And a lot of times people just put their money into the ETFs and that's it. They don't have to pick individual stocks because the ETFs do good enough. But clearly, I mean, you still need to understand the industry that you're buying the ETF of. Just because you know it's an ETF, that doesn't mean that that's necessarily going to do well. It's still you need to understand the industry that you're looking at. And I think that's so important because just you see a lot of people going blind into ETFs. You look at historical performance or various different reasons. People are just going into ETFs blind, not understanding necessarily the underlying holdings or even the industry. So. I think that conversation about how not all ETFs follow the same rules, if you will, or all even do as well as the S&P 500, I think that was important for, for the audience to, to hear. 
Let's dive into the liquid natural gas sector. The LNG market is particularly interesting because the US is now a big exporter. Gas shipping facilities are coming online in the Gulf and Mid-Atlantic, but many US-based LNG stocks have underperformed the market. The LNG as a commodity has remained too cheap for many producers and shippers to be profitable. Where do you see LNG going in the next three to five years? Thanks for the segue, Robert. I return to the ETF thing real quick. Absolutely not all I created equal, but ETFs have purposes, right? And, and I have a lot of my money, not today, but you know, in past months, I've had a lot of my money in, in just the SPY, the S&P 500 ETF. So certainly not recommending against that, but just be careful on your industries. Now, going back to LNG, yeah, absolutely. I had that kind of goofy answer. I don't know if I explained it too well, but kind of the difference on that spectrum of speculation versus investing. And I think speculation is more so geared towards what is the stock price doing in the next week, month, you know, six months or whatever. And investing is more so, I really appreciate the underlying fundamentals of this company. And I really like the fundamentals of this market. I'm very bullish on it. And I think it's going to do phenomenally in the next five to 10 years. So I think LNG is just the perfect dynamic for that because as a speculator, short term, I don't know. I mean, it's been very difficult in the stock market. The stocks are all beaten up. And you know, with this coronavirus hit to demand, with China having two warm winters in a row, with there being this massive glut of LNG on the market that looks like it won't be resolved for two or three years, as a speculator short term on the stock prices, I'm not super uh, excited right, about getting heavy weight into some of these stocks. But if you ask me, and you did, you said what in the next three to five years as an investment long-term with a solid balance sheet, solid assets, good management team, I definitely love it. I love the sector. And why do I say that? Because I think LNG and natural gas in general has gotten beaten down just as hard or even harder than oils and diesels and products and that sort of thing, where it's really two different types of energy, right? With oil, your primary use of that is going to be to go to a refinery and turn it into gasoline, turn it into diesel, turn it into jet fuel, and use that to power your transportation. So more and more, as we start seeing the rise of electric vehicles and, and alternative means like LPG and LNG and fuel cells and all that sort of thing, I think more and more, we're going to see a flattening and maybe even like a peak oil or peak gasoline, whatever you want to call it, in the next few years. Now, I don't know when. I mean, if you go back to like 1970, there's been repeated calls for peak oil of some sort. First, it was peak oil because we weren't going to discover anymore. right? And then we realized those guys were just totally, totally wrong. And then we said it was going to be peak oil because of demand falling off or things where oil would just get too expensive. Then in 2008, people said, well, people won't be able to afford oil in two more years because you know oil was 150 bucks a barrel or whatever it was at the time. But now, as we start to see these, these rise of electric vehicles, more and more and more, we're getting close to that peak. Now, natural gas has a lot longer tail of demand because natural gas is going to be the natural replacement for coal. So right now, coal is one of the main sources of power generation worldwide. It is a main source of smog and, issue, and there's a lot of issues in the most polluted countries in the world, which include China, India, Pakistan, Indonesia. All those four countries are enormous energy consumers. They have enormous pollution problems. And they're also starting to take climate change more and more seriously. Now, I think if you really get hardcore into climate change, you'll agree that you know, LNG is not a long-term solve-it-all, fix-it-all solution, but it is a necessary transition fuel. And there's really no way, like scientifically or economically, to get to those sort of climate targets by 2040, 2050, 2060 without just basically eliminating all coal and switching it over to something like natural gas, maybe more nuclear power. So natural gas in its transported form is LNG, which is a super cooled, super compressed fuel that you can send across the world. So I think the LNG is going to grow for whenever you make these really long forecasts, it gets a little bit, gets a little fuzzy. But I, I, I believe 10, 20, 30 years of growth for LNG 
Whereas to be honest with you, I don't even know. I'm nervous even saying two or three years of growth for oil. I'm nervous about that. I, I honestly don't know. But whatever oil is, LNG has five to 10 times the, uh, the tail end of demand that, that oil does. Which companies do you think are well positioned for the potential rise in LNG exports across the US? I think for LNG exports across the United States, a lot of that ship has, has sort of already sailed. A lot of the current export infrastructure projects that we're going to see in the US have, have basically already been funded and already been invested. So um, there is one company in particular that I do like to watch. It's called Tellurian, a stock symbol T-E-L-L, like Tell. That company is developing a very interesting export project out of Texas, super uh, low cost LNG. It's uh, scale, a little bit more scalable than most of the other LNG export projects. And their interesting kind of approach they're taking is they're actually selling their customers stakes of equity in the project. So instead of like, you know, keeping all the equity to the investors and you know, selling a little bit more to, to raise equity and, and buying more debt and so on, they're making all their customers in the future into like co-investors in the company. So it's kind of an interesting model they're taking. They haven't achieved final investment decision, but that is, as soon as just six months ago, we were saying all it would take is the US-China trade deal to hit that phase one mark. And we, we might see uh, some investment in that. I believe we were super close to getting that final investment decision. And then that coronavirus hit. It was, so we had a warm winter kind of holding back Asian demand. And then we had this massive kind of black swan event. So, so Tell stock has been beaten up pretty badly. I haven't looked at it in a while to see exactly what the stock price is. Um, I think it's like 550 or 6 bucks right now. But that's a, that's a stock I find very interesting. It's something I follow very closely. That is for exports. Now, in terms of what I like overall more often is the shipping companies. The shipping companies that have the most modern fleets, the most modern assets, and those are which have been responsible, have, have placed a lot of their ships on long-term contracts. So two companies I like in the LNG shipping space. One is Flex LNG, stock symbol FLNG. I have a, I have a long position in this one just for disclosures. And this company is a pure place shipping company. It is focused on the most modern LNG carriers. But as you as I mentioned it, you know that the, the atmosphere and, and the sentiment in LNG is terrible right now. So this stock has fallen by more than 50% since last summer, but the values of the ships have not changed. right? And there's a secondary market for those LNG vessels and they're still getting built today. Those values have not dropped. The earnings capacity on those vessels is still very high. The long-term average earnings are about 70 to 80,000 uh, for those vessels. The current market for those types of modern ships is still about $70,000 a day. Um, yet the stock has dropped in half. That, I think that's a very interesting play. The second one, I realize we're getting a little long-winded here, is TKLNG Partners, stock symbol TGP. And I have a long position in that one as well for disclosures. I no position in Tellurian. Uh, that's just one that I like to watch. So for TGP, they also do that shipping, but they've taken kind of the opposite approach. They don't do the spot market. They don't have any exposure to it. All their ships are in long-term contracts. So they're more of almost like a midstream annuity type investment. They've been held back recently uh, because of the terrible sector sentiment. And their dividend has not been growing quite as fast as some folks would like. But the stock price has pulled back enough that their dividend is about 9% as we're speaking. And that dividend is covered by about four times. So you think about a 9% dividend, 8 to 9% is covered about four times, showing about like a 30% yield to distributable cash flow. So, so those are the companies I like. Just real quick, because I know I went a little long-winded. Uh, Tellurian's a fun one to watch. Stock symbol T-E-L-L, no position in that one. And then the two shippers are Flex, F-L-N-G, and TGP, which is TK. LNG partners. I love that conversation because I think it's always valuable for people listening to the show to be able to go back and look at specific tickers and look at the specific companies that we've been talking about. It's one thing to hear this conversation, learn about the shipping industry and your way of investing, but it's another thing to be able to take what you're teaching us 
and actually go and look at specific companies and see how what you're saying also compares to those companies and see it in real life. So I think there's a ton of value in that. So I really appreciate you sharing those companies and the tickers. Now, I know some investors may want to invest in shipping, but stay away from oil and gas to avoid risk, but also just for maybe personal reasons. How can investors stay invested in the shipping industry as an industry as itself, but avoid those specific issues? Definitely makes sense, Robert. Yeah, with the, the whole ESG focus and the whole climate change focus, it definitely makes sense to me. Now, I might, I might disagree with the approach. I might think there's more money to be made right, in tanker stocks, but I can definitely understand that sentiment. So for those sorts of investors, I would point to some of the other subsectors. So that's something I, I probably should have mentioned earlier in our, in our interview, but shipping actually is not just one big monolith. There's like seven or eight different subsectors, and each one of those subsectors has different levels of supply and demand because these are specialty ships that can only carry one type of thing. So crude tankers right, can only carry oil products. Product tankers are specially coated tanks that carry stuff like gasoline and diesel. And then you have these dry bulk carriers that can only carry like coal or iron ore or agriculture products. Like You wouldn't put oil in a dry bulk carrier and use iron filings in a crude tanker, right? So completely different markets. So with that said, uh, the dry bulk sector is, is kind of interesting, especially mid-sized bulkers. So I, I would probably steer those sort of folks away from the large bulkers because you're looking at stuff like iron ore and coal. And I imagine the kind of folks that are not interested in oil or you know, gasoline, probably not really interested in investing in the transportation of coal. Right? I, just, I would imagine that'd be one we'd avoid. But the mid-sized bulkers do a lot more of, uh, of niche products uh, that aren't going away anytime soon. Stuff like agriculture products, forestry products, bauxite, grains, and stuff like that. So some of the mid-sized bulkers are, are, are fascinating. I think one of them that I've recently mentioned has been way oversold. I uh, just the pricing just doesn't make any sense to me today is Scorpio Bulkers, uh, stock symbol S A L T, like salt. Uh, that company trades at about 50% of its net asset value, uh, which means that if the company would go today and sell their all their ships on the market, pay off all their debt, and just like dividend out, you know, the proceeds, you'd basically double your money overnight. So trading at ridiculously low levels, some of the lowest uh, ratios I've ever seen. Uh, so that's one of them. Another one would be container ships. So container ships carry retail goods. So think of your, your Amazon, your Walmarts, and so on. And there's also refrigerated containers uh, that carry like you know, your bananas and things like that. So, so those kind of trading lanes are not going away. Even if we completely you know, divest ourselves, which of course, even when we say completely, we're talking 2040, 2050, but we completely divest ourselves from fossil fuels, like we're still going to need to transport retail goods. It's just not going to go away. So one of the companies I like in that space is Global Ship Lease stock symbol GSL. Uh, that one's very interesting because they're focused on container ships with medium to long-term contracts. So you have that stability of that revenue backlog. Whenever you look at the earnings, you kind of already know what the revenues are going to be. And they don't currently pay a dividend, which has definitely hurt their valuations. But I've spoken with management uh, repetitively over the past year, and their number one goal, once they complete their next refinancing, is to reinitiate a dividend. I believe they're probably about one to two months away from wrapping up the refinancing. And I think they'll probably bring out a dividend probably mid-2020. I actually thought it would be probably next month. But with this whole coronavirus uh, making people nervous, I think they'll probably you know, do the smart thing, do the prudent thing, focus on the balance sheet. I think in summer 2020, maybe fall 2020, they'll come out with a very nice dividend. So those would be my two, just kind of shoot from the hip. Dude, I get it. You don't like oil. You don't like gasoline. Check out Salt, Scorpio Tankers, and check out GSL Global Shipley's. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. 
Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. As we're talking, I pulled up the stock chart for Salt, and I'm looking at it, and I see that it had been relatively stagnant, if you will. It had been kind of trading in a range since mostly early 2016, up and down since then, but had mostly been in like a 4 to $10 range. But recently, since early January, it's fallen from $6.50-ish range to below $3. So what caused that big drop in cases like this? How can an investor know that they're not buying into a value trap? How can they know that this is a value opportunity rather than a value trap? And I know you mentioned that it's trading at essentially 50% of its net value, but what is the catalyst that's going to really bring out the value in that stock? Because a stock can trade at this valuation indefinitely until there's a true catalyst that really brings out the value and makes the market overall realize or understand this mispricing. So what's going to happen with salt? What's going to bring that out, the value? Asking perfect questions. So we'll start with how did it get here? So you correctly identified it was trading in a range of 5 to 6 Almost got up to seven there. I think just briefly. I think if you go back to end of October, it barely hit like seven bucks. And as you as you noted, as we're doing this interview, the night of the twenty fifth, it's at two dollars and ninety four cents. It's dropped like sixty percent since October. So how did we get there? Well, first of all, dry bulk markets are seasonal. 
So every single year with dry bulk, you get the absolute lowest rates around January or February. And that corresponds to the Chinese New Year. You know, the Chinese, they do their New Year about a month later. It's part of the lunar cycle and, and a massive holiday. And China is just such a driver for so many of these shipping sectors that when you have the world's biggest driver of your demand goes on this huge vacation for like a month, like we more like two weeks, but it's just, we don't do anything like that in the United States, right? I mean, it's just all out. So they go on this huge vacation and it always brings down demand. It always brings down the rates. So you had that happening. Well, at the exact same time that that happened, you also had this coronavirus outbreak in China. So on top of the whole like New Year, Lunar New Year, like economic slowdown, you had like half the country or more than half the country was put into a quarantine for two to three weeks. So that just completely decimated near-term demand. So, well, what happens when you have a market where the supply stays the same and the demand plummets? Well, your shipping rates are going to plummet. So we recently saw the dry bulk index the BDI, Baltic Dry, dropped to nearly all-time lows across the board. So investors are naturally, right? They're looking at that, that BDI coming down. They're looking at China having difficulties. And they're saying, you know what? I don't want to be involved in shipping. I don't like it right now. It, it looks kind of scary. Take me out of this thing. So that's why it fell, right? It, it's, it, I think it fell a little bit more than I thought it would, but it's definitely not surprising to see the, the price lower. Now, in terms of what will give us kind of the, the million dollar question, what will give us the immediate revaluation? Look, I don't think you're going to buy salt today and someone listens and they buy it tomorrow at 294 or whatever. I don't think they're going to see it pop up immediately on, on any sort of instantaneous catalyst. There is going to be a little bit of a grind it out, and a little bit of a wait. First of all, we need to see the rest of this virus peter out. I think until we see the coronavirus issues in China and the rest of the world start to fade, I don't think we're going to see a lot of that sentiment come back, even if the dry bulk rates improve. And, and by the way, they've improved day over day for basically the last week and a half or two weeks. So we're, we're already past the trough. But until we get the better news flow, I don't think the stock's going to go up a lot. So that's, that's kind of part one. Now, part two, if the news flow gets better, if the earnings get better, if there's strong cash flow, how do we get that stock to trade back towards its full in AV, right? its full net asset value? That would take the company, if the market's just being super stubborn, that would take the company doing accretive transactions. So one of those accretive transactions could be selling two or three or four of their ships and using those proceeds to repurchase equity. If they can sell this, the ships at that 100% valuation and then use that cash to buy back their own stock at 50 or 60% of the net asset value, they're basically just printing money. right? So that would be one of the mechanisms. Another one of the mechanisms could be, look, the rates have improved. The stock is still cheap. We're going to dividend out a portion or maybe most of our free cash flow. So right, we'll take care of debt. Uh, we'll make sure the balance sheet is stable, and then we'll dividend out that excess free cash flow. So you could have a situation where your stock is three dollars, and it's so ridiculously mispriced that you're getting dividends of like fifteen or twenty or thirty percent yield. Right? We've seen that for a couple times in the past. So that's a way for you to make a huge return as an investor. The stock could be flattish, but if you're making these twenty percent dividends, you're going to do pretty well. So I think. Uh, kind of a long answer there, but I, I think it's going to take a while for it to recover. But I think the market sentiment will bring it up. And if it doesn't, I expect the management will do accretive things for us. Have you found over the last decade of covering this industry, are special dividends pretty popular or common? When I first started getting into the sector, you know, about a decade ago, a lot of these companies did fixed quarterly dividends. And that is not a good fit for shipping because Shipping's volatile, right? By nature. And I, we just talked about how dry bulk does really well in the summer and fall and does really terrible in the winter. So if you're doing a fixed quarterly dividend, that doesn't really make sense. But look, that's where we were 10 years ago. And it was irresponsible and it was unsustainable. And, and a lot of income investors didn't necessarily understand what they were buying and, and they kind of fell for that. 
So special dividends back then, no, not really as popular. It's mostly fixed kind of quarterly dividends. Now, as we've kind of went through that and companies' management is getting better, corporate governance is getting better, investors are slowly getting a little bit savvier and smarter, we're seeing more companies do something like that. So one company I wanted to mention is Genco Shipping. They're a dry bulk company that just reported earnings actually earlier this afternoon. Stock symbol GNK. No position in that company. But one thing they've done is they have this massive cash pile. Uh, they have very safe balance sheet, very stable. And it's just an inordinate pile of cash. And the company trades at such a discount to their net asset value that it doesn't make sense to take that cash and go buy more ships. Their balance sheet's already safe, so they don't need to pay down more debt. So one thing they've done indeed is, is special dividends. And they did a pretty big one last quarter. They did a 17.5 cent regular dividend. And then they threw on, I think it was a 32.5 cent special dividend. So they came out and, and threw out like 50 cents of cash flow to the shareholders. And so if you look at the stock price of Genco, I had to pull it up. I think I didn't really plan on talking about it, but yeah, it looks like it's about $7. So you had this company paying out $50 a year and the stock price is seven. So just a significant yield. I had to bust my calculator. 28% implied yield if they would keep doing that. So yes, definitely when there's disconnects, you can see some of those special dividends. And I actually uh, appreciate that. I encourage that because if you don't have anything good to do with the cash, and you're not going to repurchase shares perhaps quite yet. Yeah, definitely, definitely maybe give that some of that cash back to your shareholders and let them make their own decisions. The reason I don't like regular quarterly dividends is because the shipping cycle isn't really flat. It's not stable. So I think it's way more responsible that when you have a good quarter, you pay out a little bit more. And when you have a weaker quarter, you pay out a little bit less. And almost all of the crude tanker companies that we follow, I applaud them because they have all picked up on a variable dividend policy, almost all of them. And so good quarters, you get more money. Weak quarters, we're going to focus on the balance sheet. We've talked about quite a few different stocks so far throughout this interview, but as we near the end of the show, I want to dive into two more stocks specifically. I want to dive into one that's currently your favorite that you own, and then I want to dive into one that's on your watch list. And I'm not going to hold you to a specific sector or even industry, so feel free to take this wherever you'd like. What is your number one stock pick today? What's your biggest holding? One of my favorite companies in the sector right now on a risk-reward basis that I would perhaps recommend to folks that are just maybe starting to put their toes in the water a little bit is Euronav, stock symbol E-U-R-N. For disclosure purposes, I have to say this, as we're recording this 25 February, I actually don't have an active position in Euronav because I, I like to take a little bit more aggressive positions uh, using research and, and fine-tuning that a little bit. But I mentioned Euronav because it has the best corporate governance in the sector. It has a rock-solid balance sheet. It's got a nice allocation to the crude tanker sector. And the earnings rate right now is phenomenal. They just reported Q4 about, uh, about three weeks ago. And they, with that Q4 result, they provided their Q1 fixture guidance. And their Q1 is also very, very strong. So Euronav, stock symbol E-U-R-N, I think that is an excellent way for someone who is interested in the shipping sector, maybe interested in a little bit of that oil transportation thesis, but they want a very trustworthy management. They want a strong balance sheet. They want a large market cap. They want a lot of liquidity. I think that's a very good place to start is Euronav. And I've been long them in the past. I might even be long in a couple of weeks from now, right? I, I actively manage my positions uh, quite common. That's one of the favorites in, in that regard. I guess that's kind of a watch list. Um, but in terms of a watch list, I think Tellurian that I mentioned earlier, stock symbol T-E-L-L. I think it's just a very, very interesting stock to watch because it's so, it's so indicative of how the kind of LNG, global LNG trade is, is developing. And, and right now, I, Tellurian trades under $6 a share, but based on their expected cash flow, if they get fed, which is final investment decision, if they get fed for their, their major project, I think the stock is worth at least $20 today, even based on discounted cash flow. 
And that's based on looking to their future 2024, 2025 sort of free cash flow estimates and then applying like a 20 to 25% discount rate, bringing that back. So even doing all that, adding all those discount rates, the stock's worth about 20 bucks if they get a positive FID. It trades at about six. So if they declare that FID, it's basically a triple. It's something I watch. I don't own now because I think, you know, shorter term speculative, Jamin Smyre says, well, you know, the coronavirus, the US-China tensions and so on and so forth. But if those start coming down, then that the virus gets taken care of and China recommits themselves to the US-China trade deal. I would almost be shocked if they don't get a fit. And if they get that fit, it's, it's going to be around a triple, in my opinion. So, so there's one, I, I think the number one overall pick for folks to look at and dip their toes in the sand is Euronav. And I think one of the best ones to watch and pay attention to is uh, Telerian. For those who aren't familiar, what is a FID? So a FID, FID stands for Final Investment Decision. So anytime you're working on a major infrastructure project or basically a major investment decision of any sort, you have to get all the players together. You have to line up your customers. You have to get the long-term contracts. You have to go talk with the banks and figure out your financing. You have to figure out what sort of equity and capital allocations you're going to have. You got to line all those little ducks up in a row. And then once that comes together, you have the board of directors and the bankers and all the stakeholders. They come together and they decide to go forward with a project. So we just call it a final investment decision or a FID. And that basically just means, yes, this LNG export facility is moving forward and it's financially viable. For someone that's interested in diving more into this sector, this industry, these types of stocks, what are the best resources for them to go use to learn about it? So I think for, for folks just starting to get interested in shipping and, and deep value in general, I you know, I gotta just put a plug for the free Seeking Alpha website, right? You don't even have to spend any money on it. You can go to the website, you can look up any sort of stock you want. I think pretty much any stock symbol that's traded has articles written on it. I, I know Robert, you've written some articles on Seeking Alpha. I've ran into you uh, uh writing a few good articles there. And then you, you can find out anything you want. So if it's shipping, you know, go to Seeking Alpha and put in some of those tickers that we talked about earlier on the show read some of the free articles that are available. I've done a podcast series with a lot of shipping executives and you can, you can listen to those, get sort of the insights straight from the management teams and so on. A lot of those are available for free. Not all of them, but most of them. If you're looking into terms, like for example, we just described what a FID was and you didn't know what that was. You can you know Google that, try Investopedia is a great source for, for just learning some of these terms. So yeah, Investopedia just for learning terms, seeking alpha for getting started in the marketplace. And then I think if you want to get serious, I think it does make sense to maybe subscribe to some sort of research platform. Look, I do deep value. I do shipping. If you're interested in that, we have free trials available from time to time. I'd, I'd love to have folks join us. But if you're interested in something else, like REITs or like energy or like biotech. Seeking Alpha has like 150, 160 platforms. Each one focuses on different things. So go pick out the one that's right for you. Get on free trials and try two or three or four of them and figure out which one's a good fit and which one's not. Look, I mean, deep value and shipping, that's not for everybody. Check out all the free stuff. Do your own research. Figure out if it's something you're interested in. And if it's not, no problem. No harm, no foul. Jay, thanks so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Are there any other places that you'd like to point the audience to go to connect with you further? I do have a Twitter account. It's uh, when you have a name like Mincemeyer, you know, you, you get to place your brand on, <laughs> on easy things. So my Twitter handle is at Mincemeyer, M-I-N-T-Z-M-Y-E-R. And I, you know, I tweet out occasionally you know, earnings reviews or, or a basic market commentary on there. Of course, Twitter is totally free. If you you know tweet at me, you got a question, I'll do my best to answer it. You know, go on Seeking Alpha, follow my profile, send me a message, all that sort of stuff. So I always try to communicate as much as I can. Obviously, I got about 500 folks on our research platform, so I have to you know, help out the customers first. But whatever free time is left, I'm definitely happy to connect and, and talk with you, and I look forward to it. 
Awesome. That's fantastic. I'll be sure to put links to all those different resources that you just mentioned in the show notes, both for you as well as places where you and the audience can go and learn more about the shipping industry and deep value investing. And I'll also put some books in the show notes in your favorite podcast player below that relate to these types of topics that we've talked about. So you can go read those if you want to learn a little bit more there as well. Jay, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Fantastic. Thanks again, Robert. All right, guys, that's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.